It was Walter. Agnes knew it. It wasn't knowledge in her mind, exactly. It was practically something she breathed. She felt it as a tree feels the sun. It all fitted. He could go anywhere, and no one took any notice of Walter Plinge. In a way, he was invisible, because he was always there. And if you were someone like Walter Plinge, wouldn't you long to be someone as debonair and dashing as the ghost? If you were someone like Agnes Knit, wouldn't you long to be someone as dark and mysterious as Perdita X Dream? The traitor thought was there before she could choke it off. She added hurriedly, But I've never killed anyone. Because that's what I'd have to believe, isn't it? If he's the ghost, then he's killed people. All the same, he does look odd, and he talks as if the words are trying to escape. A hand touched her shoulder. She spun round. It's only me, said Christine. Oh, don't you think this is a marvellous dress? What? This dress, silly. Agnes looked her up and down. Oh, yes, very nice, she said, disinterest lying on her voice like rain on a midnight pavement. Don't sound very impressed. Really, Perdita, there's no need to be jealous. I'm not jealous. I was thinking. She'd only seen the ghost for a moment, but he certainly hadn't moved like Walter. Walter walked as though his body were being dragged along by his head, but the certainty was as hard as marble now. Well, you don't seem very impressed, I must say. I'm wondering if Walter Plinge is the ghost, said Agnes, and immediately cursed herself, or at least pooted. She felt embarrassed enough about Andre's reaction. Christine's eyes widened. But he's a clown. He walks odd and he talks odd, said Agnes, but if he stood up straight... Christine laughed. Agnes felt herself getting angry, and he practically told me he was. You believed him, did you? Christine made a little tutting sound that Agnes considered quite offensive. Really? You girls believe the strangest things. What do you mean, we girls? Oh, you know, the dancers are always saying they've seen the ghost all over the place. Good grief, do you think I'm some sort of impressionable idiot? Think for a minute before answering. Well, uh, of course I don't, but... <laughs> Agnes strode off into the wings, concerned more with effect than direction. The background noise of the stage faded behind her as she stepped into the scenery store. It didn't lead anywhere except to a pair of big double doors opening into the world outside. It was full of bits of castles, balconies and romantic prison cells, stacked any old how. Christine hurried up behind her. I really didn't mean, look, not Walter, he's just a very odd, odd job man. He does all kinds of jobs. No one ever knows where he is. They all just assume he's around. All right, but you don't have to get so worked up. There was the faintest of sounds behind them. They turned. The ghost bowed. Who's a good boy, then? Nanny's got a bowl of fish eggs for a good boy, said Nanny, trying to see under the big dresser in the kitchen. Fish eggs, said Granny coldly. I borrowed them from the stuff they have done for the soiree, said Nanny. Borrowed, said Granny. That's right. Come along, Greeball. Who's a good boy, then? Borrowed? You mean when the cat's finished with them, you're going to give them back? It's only a manner of speaking, Esme, said Nanny in a hurt little voice. It's not the same as stealing if you don't mean it. Come along, boy. Here's some lovely fish eggs for you. Grebo pulled himself further into the shadows.
There was a little sigh from Christine, and she folded up into a faint. But she managed, Agnes noticed sourly, to collapse in a way that probably didn't hurt when she hit the ground, and which showed off her dress to the best effect. It was beginning to dawn on Agnes that Christine was remarkably clever in some specialised ways. She looked back at the mask. It's all right, she said, her voice sounding hoarse even to her. I know why you're doing it. I really do. No expression could cross that ivory face, but the eyes flickered. Agnes swallowed. The Perdita part of her wanted to give in right now because that would be more exciting. But she stood her ground. You want to be something else and you're stuck with what you are, said Agnes. I know all about that. You're lucky. All you have to do is put on a mask. At least you're the right shape. But why did you have to go and kill people? Why? Mr Pounder couldn't have done you any harm. But he... he poked around in odd places, didn't he? And he found something. The ghost nodded slightly and then held out his ebony cane. He grasped both ends and pulled so that a long, thin sword slid out. I know who you are, Agnes burst out as he stepped forward. I could probably help you. It might not have been your fault. She backed away. I haven't done anything to you. You don't have to be afraid of me. She backed away further as the figure advanced. The eyes in the dark hollows of the mask glinted like tiny jewels. I'm your friend, don't you see? Please, Walter. Walter! There was, far off, an answering sound that seemed as loud as thunder and as impossible in the circumstances as a chocolate kettle. It was a clank of a bucket handle. What's the matter, Miss Perdita Knit? The ghost hesitated. There was the sound of footsteps, irregular footsteps. The ghost lowered the sword, opened a door in a piece of scenery painted to represent a castle wall, bowed ironically and slipped away. Walter rounded a corner. He was an unlikely knight-errant. For one thing, he had on evening dress, obviously designed for someone of a different shape. He was still wearing his beret. He also wore an apron and was carrying a mop and bucket. But no heroic lance-wielding rescuer ever galloped over a drawbridge more happily. He was practically surrounded by a golden glow. Walter? What's the matter with Miss Christine? She, uh, uh she fainted, said Agnes. Uh, probably... Yeah, probably the excitement with the opera tonight. Yes, probably the excitement uh, because of the opera tonight. Walter gave her a slightly worried look. Yes, he said, and added patiently, I know where there's a medicine box. Shall I get it? Christine groaned and fluttered her eyelashes. <sighs> where am I? Perdita gritted Agnes's teeth. Where am I? That didn't sound the sort of thing someone said when they woke up from a faint. sounded more like the sort of thing they said because they'd heard it was the sort of thing people said. You fainted, she said. She looked hard at Walter. Why were you in here, Walter? Got to mop out the stagehand's privy, Miss Nitt. Always having trouble. I've been working on it for months. But you're wearing evening dress. Yes, then I got to be a waiter afterwards because we're short-handed and there's no one else to be a waiter when they have drinks and sausages on poles before the opera. No one could have moved that fast. True, Walter and the ghost hadn't both been in the room at the same time, but she'd heard his voice. No one could have had time to duck around behind the piles of flats and turn up at the opposite side of the room in seconds, unless they were some sort of wizard. Some of the girls did say the ghost could almost seem to be in two places at once. 
Perhaps there were other secret places like the old staircase. Perhaps he... She stopped herself. Walter Plinge wasn't the ghost, then. There was no sense in trying to find some excitable explanation to prove wrong right. She'd told Christine. Well, Christine was giving her just a slightly bemused look as Walter helped her up. And she'd told Andre, but he hadn't seemed to believe her, so probably that was all right. Which meant that the ghost was someone else. She'd been so certain. You'll enjoy it, Mother, you really will. Chained for the likes of us, Henry. I don't see why Mr Morecambe couldn't give you tickets to see Nelly Stamp at the music hall. Now that's what I call music. Proper tunes, you can understand. Songs like She Sits Among the Cabbages and Leeks are not very cultural, Mother. Two figures wandered through the crowds heading for the opera house. This was their conversation. It's a good laugh, though, and you don't have to hire suits. Seems daft to me, having to wear a special suit just to listen to music. It enhances the experience, said young Henry, who had read this somewhere. I mean, how does the music know, said his mother. Now, Nelly, stamp. Come along, mother. It was going to be one of those evenings, he knew it. Henry Lawsey did his best. And, given the starting point, it wasn't a bad best. He was a clerk in the firm of Morecambe, Slant and Honeyplace, a somewhat old-fashioned legal partnership. One reason for its less-than-modern approach was the fact that Messrs Morecambe and Honeyplace were vampires, and Mr Slant was a zombie. The three partners were therefore technically dead, although this did not prevent them putting in a proper day's work, normally during the night, in the case of Mr Morecambe and Mr Honeyplace. From Henry's point of view, the hours were good and the job was not onerous, but he chafed somewhat about his promotion prospects because clearly dead men's shoes were being fully occupied by dead men. He decided that the only way to succeed was to better himself by improving his mind, which he tried to do at every opportunity. It is probably a full description of Henry Lawsey's mind that if you had given him a book called How to Improve Your Mind in Five Minutes, he would have read it with a stopwatch. His progress through life was hampered by his tremendous sense of his own ignorance, a disability which affects all too few people. Mr Morecambe had given him two opera tickets as a reward for sorting out a particularly problematical tort. He'd invited his mother because she represented 100% of all the women he knew. People tended to shake Henry's hand cautiously in case it came off. He'd bought a book about the opera and read it carefully, because he'd heard that it was absolutely unheard of to go to an opera without knowing what it was about, and the chance of finding out while you were actually watching it was remote. The book's reassuring weight was in his pocket right now. All he needed to complete the evening was a less embarrassing parent. "'Can we get some peanuts before we go in?' said his mother. "'Mother, they don't sell peanuts at the opera.' "'No peanuts? What are you supposed to do if you don't like the songs?' Grebo's suspicious eyes were two glows in the gloom. Poke him with a broom handle, suggested Granny. No, said Nanny, with someone like Grebo, you have to use a little bit of kindness. Granny closed her eyes and waved a hand. There was a yowl from under the kitchen's dresser and a sound of frantic scrabbling. Then his claws scoring tracks in the floor. Grebo came out backwards, fighting all the way. Mind you, a lot of cruelty does the trick as well. Nanny conceded. You've never been much of a cat person, have you, Esme? 
Grebo would have hissed at Granny, except that even his cat brain was just bright enough to realise this was not the best move he could make. Give him his fish eggs, Granny said. He might as well have them now as later. Grebo inspected the dish. Oh, this was all right then. They wanted to give him food. Granny nodded at Nanny Og. They held out their hands, palm up. Grebo was halfway through the caviar when he felt it happening. He wailed, and then the voice went deeper as his chest expanded and rose physically as his back legs lengthened under him. His ears flattened against his head and then crept down his sides. The jacket's a 44-inch chest, said Nanny. Granny nodded. His face flattened. His whiskers spread out. Grebo's nose developed a life of its own. Shit! You certainly get the hang of it quicker these days, said Nanny. You put some clothes on right now, my lad, said Granny, who had shut her eyes. Not that this made much difference, she had to admit later. Grebo, fully clothed, still managed to communicate the nakedness beneath. The insouciant moustache, the long sideburns and the tousled black hair combined with the well-developed muscles to give the impression of the more louche kind of buccaneer or a romantic poet who'd given up on the opium and tried red meat instead. He had a scar running across his face and a black patch now where it crossed the eye. When he smiled, he exuded an easy air of understilled, excitingly dangerous lasciviousness. He could swagger while asleep. Grebo could, in fact, commit sexual harassment simply by sitting very quietly in the next room. Except as far as the witches were concerned. To Granny, a cat was a damn cat, whatever shape it was, and Nanny Og always thought of him as Mr Fluffy. She adjusted the bow tie and stood back critically. What do you think? she said. He looks like an assassin, but he'll do, said Granny. Oh, what a nasty thing to say. Grebo waved his arms experimentally and fumbled with the ebony cane. Fingers took a bit of getting used to, but cat reflexes learned fast. Nanny waved a finger playfully under his nose. He took a half-hearted swipe at it. "'Now you just stay with Granny and do what she tells you like a good boy,' she said. "'Yes, Nanny,' said Grebo reluctantly. He managed to grip the stick properly. "'And no fighting?' "'No, Nanny.' And no leaving bits of people on the doormat. No, Nanny. We'll have no trouble like we did with those robbers last month. No, Nanny. He looked depressed. Humans had no fun. Incredible complications surrounded the most basic activities. And no turning back into a cat again until we say, Yes, Nanny. Play your cards right and there could be a kipper in this for you. Yes, Nanny. "'What are we going to call him?' said Granny. "'He can't just be Grebo, which I've always said was a damn silly name for a cat.' "'Well, he looks aristocratic,' Nanny began. "'He looks like a beautiful brainless bully,' Granny corrected her. "'Aristocratic,' repeated Nanny. "'Same thing.' "'We can't call him Grebo, anyway.' "'We'll think of something.' Salzella leaned disconsolately against the marble banister of the foyer's grand staircase and stared gloomily into his drink. It had always seemed to him that one of the major flaws in the whole business of opera was the audience. They were quite unsuitable, the only ones worse than the ones who didn't know anything at all about music and whose idea of a sensible observation was, I liked that bit near the end when her voice went wobbly, were the ones who thought they did. 
Want a drink, do you, Mr. Salzilla? There's lots, you know. Walter Plynn jambled by, his black suit making him look like a very good class of scarecrow. Plinge, you just say, drink, sir, said the director of music, and please take off that ridiculous beret. My mum made it for me. I'm sure she did, but Bucket sidled up to him. Ah, I thought I told you to keep Signor Basilica away from the canapes, he hissed. I'm sorry, I couldn't find a big enough crowbar, said Salzella, waving away Walter and his beret. Anyway, isn't he supposed to be communing with his muse in his dressing room? The curtain goes up in twenty minutes. He says he sings better on a full stomach. Then we're in for a treat tonight. Bucket turned and surveyed the scene. Oh, well, it's going well anyway, he said. I suppose so. The watcher here, you know, in secret, they are mingling. Ah, let me guess. Salzella looked around at the crowds. There was indeed a very short man in a suit intended for a rather larger man. This was especially the case with the opera cloak, which actually trailed on the floor behind him to give the overall impression of a superhero who had spent too much time around the kryptonite. He was wearing a deformed fur hat and trying surreptitiously to smoke a cigarette. You mean that little man with the words Watch Man in Disguise flashing on and off just above his head? Where? Oh, I didn't see that. Salzella sighed. It's Corporal Nobby Nobbs, he said wearily. The only person to require an identity card to prove his species. I've watched him mingle with three large sherries. He's not the only one, though, said Mr. Bucket. They're taking this seriously. Oh, yes, said Salzella. If we look over there, for example, we see Sergeant Detritus, who is a troll and who is wearing what in the circumstances is actually a rather well-fitting suit. It is therefore I feel something of a pity he has neglected to remove his helmet. And these, you understand, the watch has chosen for their ability to blend. Well, they'll, they'll certainly be useful if the ghost strikes again, said Bucket, hopelessly. The ghost would have to... Salzella stopped. He blinked. Oh, good grief, he whispered. What has she found? Bucket turned. That's Lady Esmeralda. Oh. Grebo strolled in alongside her with the gentle swagger that makes women thoughtful and men's knuckles go white. The buzz of conversation was momentarily hushed and then rose again to a slightly shriller buzz. I'm impressed, said Salzella. He, um, certainly doesn't look like a gentleman, said Bucket. Look at the colour of that eye. He set his face into what he hoped was a smile and bowed. Well, Lady Esmeralda, he said, how pleasant to see you again. Uh, won't you introduce us to your, um, uh, guest? This is Lord Gribeau, said Granny. Mr Bucket, the owner, and Mr Salzella, who seems to run the place. Ha, ha said Salzella. Gribeau snarled, revealing longer incisors than any that Bucket had seen outside a zoo, and Bucket had never seen such a greenish-yellow eye. The pupil was all wrong. Ha, ha, he said, and, 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 and may I order you something? He'll have milk, said Granny firmly. I expect he has to keep up his strength, said Salzella. Granny spun around. Her expression would have etched steel. "'Anyone for a drink?' said Nanny Og, appearing out of nowhere with a tray and adroitly stepping between them like a very small peacekeeping force. "'Got a bit of everything here,' 
"'Including a glass of milk, I see,' said Bucket. Salzella looked from one witch to the other. "'That's remarkably foresighted of you,' he said. "'Well, you never know,' said Nanny. Gribaud took the glass in both hands and lapped at it with his tongue. Then he looked at Salzella. "'What you're looking at? Never seen milk drunk before?' Never quite like that, I must admit. Nanny winked at Granny Weatherwax as she turned to scurry away. Granny caught her arm. Remember, she whispered, when we go into the box, you keep an eye on Mrs. Plinge. Mrs. Plinge knows something. I ain't sure what's going to happen, but it is going to happen. Right, said Nanny. She bustled off, muttering under her breath. Oh, yes, do this, do that. Drink here, please, ma'am. Nanny looked down. Good grief, she said. What are you? The apparition in the fur hat winked at her. I'm the Count de Nobs, it said. And this here, it added, indicating a mobile wall, is the Count de Tritus. <laughs> Nanny glanced at the troll. Another Count? I'm sure there's unaccountably more Counts here than I can count. And what can I get you, officers? she said. Officers? Oh, us, said the Count de Nobs. What makes you think we're watchmen? Well, he's got a helmet on, Nanny pointed out. Also, he's got his badge pinned on his coat. I told you to put it away, Nobby hissed. He looked at Nanny and smiled uneasily. Military chic, he said. <laughs> it's just a fashion accessory. Actually, we are gentlemen of means and have nothing to do with the city watch whatsoever. Well, gentlemen, would you like some wine? Not while we're on duty, thanks, said the troll. Oh, yes, thank you very much, Count Detritus, said Nobby bitterly. Oh, yes, very undercover, that is. Why don't you just wave your truncheon around where everyone can see it? Well, if you think it'd help, put it away. The Count Detritus's eyebrows met with the effort of thought. That was irony, then, was it? To a superior officer? Can't be a superior officer, can you? Cos we ain't watchmen. Look, Commander Vimes explained it three times. Nanny Og tactfully moved away. It was bad enough watching them blow their cover without sucking at it as well. This was a new world, all right. She was used to a life where the men wore the bright clothes and the women wore black. It made it a lot easier to decide what to put on in the mornings. But inside the opera house, the rules of clothing were all in reverse, just like the laws of common sense. Here, the women dressed like frosted peacocks, and the men looked like penguins. So, there were coppers here. Nanny Og was basically a law-abiding person when she had no reason to break the law, and therefore had that kind of person's attitude to law enforcement officers, which was one of deep and permanent distrust. There was their approach to theft, for example. Nanny had a witch's view of theft, which was a lot more complicated than the attitude adopted by the law, and if it came to it, people who owned property were stealing. They tended to wield the huge blunt axe of the law in circumstances that required the delicate scalpel of common sense. No, thought Nanny, policemen with their great big boots were not required here on a night like this. It would be a good idea to put a thumbtack under the ponderous feet of justice. She ducked behind a gilt statue and fumbled in the recesses of her clothing while people nearby looked around in puzzlement at the erratic twanging of elastic. She was sure she had one around somewhere. She'd packed it in case of emergencies. There was the clink of a small bottle. Ah, yes, 
A moment later, Nanny Og emerged decorously with two small glasses on her tray and headed purposefully for the watchman. "'Fruit drink, officers?' she said. "'Oh, silly me, what am I saying? I didn't mean officers. Home-made fruit drink?' Detritus sniffed suspiciously, immediately clearing his sinuses. "'What's in it?' he said. "'Apples,' said Nanny Og promptly. "'Well, mainly apples.' Under her hand, a couple of spilt drops finished eating their way through the metal of the tray and dropped onto the carpet where they smoked. The auditorium buzzed with the sound of opera-goers settling down and Mrs. Lawsey trying to find her shoes. "'You really shouldn't have taken them off, Mother.' "'My feet are giving me chip.' "'Did you bring your knitting? "'I think I must have left it in the ladies.' "'Oh, Mother!' Henry Lawsey marked his place in his book and raised his runny eyes heavenward and blinked. Right above him, a long way above him, was a glittering circle of light. His mother followed his gaze. What's that, then? I think it's a chandelier, mother. It's a pretty big one. What's holding it up? I'm sure they've got special ropes and things, mother. Looks a bit dangerous, to my mind. I'm sure it's absolutely safe, mother. What do you know about chandeliers? I'm sure people wouldn't come into the opera house if there was any chance of a chandelier dropping on their heads, mother, said Henry, trying to read his book. Il Trucatore, the master of disguise. Il Trucatore, tenor, a mysterious nobleman, causes scandal in the city when he woos high-born ladies while disguised as their husbands. However, Laura, soprano, the new bride of Capriccio, baritone, refuses to give in to his blandishments. Henry put a bookmark in the book, took a smaller book from his pocket and carefully looked up blandishments. He was moving in a world he wasn't quite sure of. Embarrassment lay waiting at every turn, and he wasn't going to get caught out over a word. Henry lived his life in permanent dread of being asked questions later. And with the help of his servant, Wingy, tenor, he adopts a subterfuge. The dictionary came out again for a moment, culminating, and again, in the scene at the famous masked ball at the Duke's palace. But Il Trucatore has not reckoned with his old adversary, the Count de... Adversary, Henry sighed, and reached for his pocket. Curtain up in five minutes. Salzella reviewed his troops. They consisted of scene builders and painters and all those other employees who could be spared for the evening. At the end of the line, about 50% of Walter Plinge had managed to stand to attention. Now, you all know your positions, said Salzella, and if you see anything, anything at all, you are to let me know at once. Do you understand? Mr. Salzella? Yes, Walter? We mustn't interrupt the opera, Mr. Salzella. Salzella shook his head. People will understand, I'm sure. Show must go on, Mr. Salzella. Walter, you will do what you're told. Someone raised a hand. He's got a point, though, Mr. Salzella. Salzella rolled his eyes. Just catch the ghost, he said. If we can do it without a lot of shouting, that's good. Of course I don't want to stop the show. He saw them relax. A deep chord rolled out over the stage. What the hell was that? Salzella strode behind the stage and was met by Andre, looking excited. What's going on? We repaired it, Mr. Salzella. Only, well, he doesn't want to give up the seat. The librarian nodded at the director of music. Salzella knew the orangutan, 
and among the things he knew was that if the librarian wanted to sit somewhere, then that was where he sat. But he was a first-class organist, Salzella had to admit. His lunchtime recitals in the Great Hall of Unseen University were extremely popular, especially since the university's organ had every single sound effect that bloody stupid Johnson's inverted genius had been able to contrive. No one would have believed, before a pair of simian hands had worked on the project, that something like Doinoff's romantic prelude in G could be re-scored for whoopee cushion and squashed rabbits. "'There's the overtures,' said Andre, "'and the ballroom scene.' "'At least get him a bow-tie,' said Salzella. "'No one can see him, Mr. Salzella, and he hasn't really got much of a neck. "'We do have standards, Andre.' "'Yes, Mr. Salzella. "'Since you seem to have been relieved of employment this evening, "'then perhaps you could help us apprehend the ghost.' "'Certainly, Mr. Salzella. "'Fetch him a tie, then, and come with me.' "'A little later, left to himself, "'the librarian opened his copy of the score "'and placed it carefully on the stand.' He reached down under the seat and pulled out a large brown paper bag of peanuts. He wasn't entirely sure why Andre, having talked him into playing the organ this evening, had told the other man that it was because he, the librarian, wouldn't budge. In fact, he'd got some interesting cataloguing to do and had been looking forward to it. Instead, he seemed to be here for the night, although a pound of shelled peanuts was handsome pay by any ape's standards. The human mind was a deep and abiding mystery, and the librarian was glad he didn't have one any more. He inspected the bow-tie. As André had foreseen, it presented certain problems to someone who'd been behind the door when the necks were handed out. Granny Weatherwax stopped in front of Box 8 and looked around. Mrs Plinge wasn't visible. She unlocked the door with what was probably the most expensive key in the world. "'And you behave yourself,' she said. "'Yes, Granny.' moaned Grebo. No going to the lavatory in the corners. No, Granny. Granny glared at her escort. Even in a bow tie, even with his fine moustaches waxed, he was still a cat. You just couldn't trust them to do anything except turn up for meals. The inside of the box was rich red plush, picked out with gilt decoration. It was like a soft little private room. There were a couple of fat pillars on either side, supporting part of the weight of the balcony above. She looked over the edge and noted the drop to the stalls below. Of course, someone could probably climb in from one of the adjacent boxes, but that had been full view of the audience and would be bound to cause some comment. She peeked under the seats. She stood on a chair and felt around the ceiling, which had gilt stars on it. She inspected the carpet minutely. She smiled at what she saw. She'd been prepared to bet that she knew how the ghost got in, and now she was certain. Grebo spat on his hand and tried ineffectually to groom his hair. "'You sit quiet and eat your fish eggs,' said Granny. "'Yes, Granny.' "'And watch the opera. It's good for you.' "'Yes, Granny.' "'Evening, Mrs Plinge.' said Nanny cheerfully. Ain't this exciting? The buzz of the audience, the air of expectation, the blokes in the orchestra finding somewhere to hide the bottles and trying to remember how to play, all the exhilaration and drama of the operatic experience waiting to unfold. Oh, hello, Mrs Ogg, said Mrs Plinge. She was polishing glasses in her tiny bar. Certainly very packed, said Nanny. She looked sidelong at the old woman. It was central to Nanny Ogg's soul that she never considered herself an old woman, while, of course, availing herself of every advantage that other people's perceptions of her as such would bring. 
Every seat sold, I heard. This didn't achieve the expected reaction. Shall I give you a hand cleaning out box eight? She went on. Oh, I cleaned it out last week, said Mrs. Plinge. She held up a glass to the light. Yes, but I hear her ladyship is very particular, said Nanny, very picky about things. What ladyship? Mr. Bucket has sold box eight, see, said Nanny. She heard a faint tinkle of glass. Ah. Mrs. Plinge appeared at the doorway of her nook. But he can't do that. It's his opera house, said Nanny, watching Mrs. Plinge carefully. I suppose he thinks he can. It's the ghost's box. Opera goers were appearing along the corridor. I shouldn't think he'd mind just for one night, said Nanny Og. The show must go on, eh? Are you all right, Mrs. Plinge? I think I'd better just go and... She began stepping forward. No, you have a good sit down and a rest, said Nanny, pressing her back with gentle but irresistible force. But I should go and... And what, Mrs. Plinge, said Nanny. The old woman went pale. Granny Weatherwax could be nasty, but the nastiness was always in the window. You were aware that it might turn up on the menu. Sharpness from Nanny Og, though, was like being bitten by a friendly dog. It was all the worse for being unexpected. I dare say you wanted to go and have a word with somebody. Did you, Mrs. Plinge? said Nanny softly. Someone who might be a little shocked to find his box full, perhaps. I reckon I could put a name to that someone, Mrs. Plinge. Now, if the old woman's hand came up holding a bottle of champagne and then came down hard in an effort to launch the SS Githa Og onto the seas of unconsciousness, the bottle bounced. Then Mrs. Plinge leapt past and scuttled away, her polished little black boots twinkling. Nanny Og caught the door frame and swayed a little while blue and purple fireworks went off behind her eyes. But there was dwarf in the Og ancestry and that meant a skull you could go mining with. She stared muzzily at the bottle. "'Year of the insulted goat,' she mumbled. "'That's a good year.' Then consciousness gained the upper hand. She grinned as she galloped after the retreating figure. In Mrs. Plinge's place, she'd have done exactly the same thing, except a good deal harder. Agnes waited with the others for the curtain to go up. She was one of the crowd of fifty or so townspeople who would hear Enrico Basilica sing of his success as a master of disguise, it being a vital part of the entire process that while the chorus would listen to expositions of the plot and even sing along, they would suffer an instant lapse of memory afterwards so that later unmaskings would come as a surprise. For some reason, without any word being spoken, as many people as possible seemed to have acquired very broad, brimmed hats. Those who hadn't were taking every opportunity to glance upwards. Beyond the curtain, Herr Trubelmacher launched the overture. Enrico, who had been chewing a chicken leg, carefully put the bone on a plate and nodded. The waiting stagehand dashed off. The opera had begun. Mrs. Plinge reached the bottom of the grand staircase and hung on to the banister, panting. The opera had started. There was no one around and no sounds of pursuit either. She straightened up and tried to get her breath back. Cooey, Mrs. Plinge! Nanny Og, waving the champagne bottle like a club, was already travelling at speed when she hit the first turn in the banister, but she leaned like a professional and kept her balance as she went into the straight and then tilted again for the next curve, which left only the big gilt statue at the bottom. It is the fate of all banisters worth sliding down that there is something nasty waiting at the far end. 
but Nanny Og's response was superb. She swung a leg over as she hurled downwards and pushed herself off, her nailed boots leaving grooves in the marble, as she spun to a halt in front of the old woman. Mrs. Plinge was lifted off her feet and carried into the shadows behind another statue. "'You don't want to try and outrun me, Mrs. Plinge,' Nanny whispered as she clamped a hand firmly over Mrs. Plinge's mouth. "'You just want to wait here quietly with me. "'And don't go thinking I'm nice. "'I'm only nice compared to Esme. "'But uh, so is practically everyone.' <clears throat> with one hand tightly around Mrs. Plinge's arm and the other over her mouth, Nanny peered round the statue. She could hear the singing far off. Nothing else happened. After a while, she started to fret. Perhaps he'd taken fright. Perhaps Mrs. Plinge had left him some sort of signal. Perhaps he decided that the world was currently too dangerous for ghosts, although Nanny doubted he could ever decide that. At this rate, the first act would be over before... A door opened somewhere. A lanky figure in a black suit and a ridiculous beret crossed the foyer and went up the stairs. At the top, they saw it turn in the direction of the boxes and disappear. You see, said Nanny, trying to get the stiffness out of her limbs, the thing about Esme is, she's stupid. Hmm? So she thinks that the most obvious way, do you see, for the ghost to get in and out of the box is through the door. If you can't find a secret panel, she reckons it's because it ain't there. A secret panel that ain't there is the best kind there is. The reason being no bugger can find it. That's where you people all think too operatic, see? You're all cooped up in this place, listening to daft plots what don't make sense, and I reckon it does something to your minds. People can't find a trapdoor, so they say, Oh, dearie me, what a hidden trapdoor it must be! Whereas a normal person, e.g. me and Esme, we'd say, Maybe there ain't one, then. And the best way for the ghost to get around the place without being seen is for him to be seen and not noticed, especially if he's got keys. People don't notice Walter. They looks the other way. She gently released her grip. Now, I don't blame you, Mrs Plinge, cos I'd do the same for one of mine. But you'd have done better to trust Esme right at the start. She'll help you if she can. Nanny let Mrs Plinge go, but kept a grip on the champagne bottle, just in case. What if she can't? said Mrs Plinge bitterly. You think Walter did those murders? He's a good boy. I'm sure that's the same as a no, isn't it? They'll put him in prison. If he done them murders, Esme won't let that happen, said Nanny. Something sank into Mrs Plinge's not very alert mind. What do you mean she won't let that happen, she said. I mean, said Nanny, that if you throw yourself on Esme's mercy, you better be damn sure you deserve to bounce. Oh, Mrs Og. Now don't you worry about anything, said Nanny, perhaps a little late under the circumstances. It occurred to her that the immediate future might be a little bit easier on everyone if Mrs Plinge got some well-earned rest. She fumbled in her clothing and produced a bottle half full of some cloudy orange liquid. I'll just give you a sip of a little something to calm your nerves. What is it? It's a sort of tonic, said Nanny. She flicked the cork out with her thumb. On the ceiling above her, the paint crinkled. It's made from apples. Well, mainly apples. Walter Plinge stopped outside Box 8 and looked around. Then he removed his beret and pulled out the mask. The beret went into his pocket. He straightened up, and it looked very much as though Walter Plinge with the mask on was several inches taller. 
He took a key from his pocket and unlocked the door, and the figure that stepped into the box did not move like Walter Plinge. It moved as though every nerve and muscle were under full and athletic control. The sounds of the opera filled the box. The walls had been lined with red velvet and were hung with curtains. The chairs were high and well padded. The ghost slipped into one of them and settled down. A figure leaned forward out of the other chair and said, You can't have my fish eggs. The ghost leapt up. The door clicked behind him. Granny stepped out from the curtains. Well, well, we meet again, she said. He backed away to the edge of the box. I shouldn't think you could jump, said Granny. It's a long way down. She focused her best stare on the white mask. And now, Mr Ghost... He sprang back onto the edge of the box, saluted Granny flamboyantly, and leapt upwards. Granny blinked. Up until now, the stare had always worked. Too damn dark, she muttered. Grebo! The bowl of caviar flew out of his nervous fingers and caused a fortean experience somewhere in the stalls. Yes, Granny, catch him, and there could be a kipper in it for you. Grebo snarled happily. This was more like it. Opera had begun to pall for him the moment he realised that no one was going to pour a bucket of cold water over the singers. He understood chasing things. Besides, he liked to play with his friends. Agnes saw the movement out of the corner of her eye. A figure had jumped out of one of the boxes and was climbing up to the balcony. Then another figure clambered after it, scrambling over the gilt cherubs. Singers faltered in mid-note. There was no mistaking the leading figure. It was the ghost. The librarian was aware that the orchestra had stopped playing. Somewhere on the other side of the backcloth, the singers had stopped too. There was a buzz of excited conversation and one or two cries. The hairs all over his body began to prickle. Senses designed to protect his species in the depths of the rainforest had adjusted nicely to the conditions of a big city, which was merely drier and had more carnivores. He picked up the discarded bow tie and, with great deliberation, tied it around his forehead so that he looked like a really formal kamikaze warrior. Then he threw away the opera score and stared blankly into space for a moment. He knew instinctively that some situations required musical accompaniment. This organ lacked what he considered the most basic of facilities, such as the thunder pedal, a 128-foot earthquake pipe, and a complete keyboard of animal noises, but he was certain there was something exciting that could be done in the bass register. He stretched out his arms and cracked his knuckles. This took some time, and then he began to play. The ghost danced along the edge of the balcony, scattering hats and opera glasses. The audience watched in astonishment and then began to clap. They couldn't quite see how it fitted into the plot of the opera, but this was an opera, after all. He reached the centre of the balcony, trotted a little way up the aisle, and then turned and ran down again at speed. He reached the edge, jumped, jumped again, soared out into the auditorium, and landed on the chandelier, which jingled and began to sway gently. The audience stood up and applauded as he climbed through the jangling tears towards the central cable, then another shape clambered over the edge of the balcony and loped along in pursuit. This was a stockier figure than the first man, one-eyed, broad in the shoulders and tapering at the waist. He looked evil in an interesting kind of way, like a pirate who really understood the words Jolly Roger. He didn't even take a run, but when he reached the closest part to the chandelier, simply launched himself into space. It was clear that he wasn't going to make it. And then it wasn't clear how he did. 
Those watching through opera glasses swore later that the man thrust out an arm which merely seemed to graze the chandelier, and yet was then somehow able to swivel his entire body in mid-air. A couple of people swore even harder that just as the man reached out, his fingernails appeared to grow by several inches. The huge glass mountain swung ponderously on its rope, and as it reached the end of the swing, Grebo swung out further like a trapeze artist. There was an appreciative, ooh, from the audience. He twisted again. The chandelier hesitated for a moment at the extremity of its arc, and then swept back again. As it jangled and creaked over the stalls, the hanging figure swung upwards, let go, and did a backward somersault that dropped him in the middle of the crystals. Candles and prisms were scattered over the seats below. And then, with the audience clapping and cheering, he scrambled up the rope after the fleeing ghost. Henry Lawsey tried to move his arm, but a fallen crystal had stapled the sleeve of his coat to his armrest. It was a quandary. He was pretty sure this wasn't supposed to happen, but he wasn't certain. Around him he could hear people hissing questions. Was that part of the plot? I, I, I'm sure it must have been. Oh, yes, yes, it certainly was, said someone further down the row, authoritatively. Yes, yes, the famous chase scene. Mm, indeed, oh yes, they did it in Querm, you know. Oh yes, of course, yes, yes, I'm sure I heard about it. I thought it was bloody good, said Mrs Lawsey. Mother! About time something interesting happened. You should have told me. I'd have put my glasses on. Nanny Og pounded up the back stairs towards the fly loft. Something's gone wrong, she muttered under her breath as she took the stairs two at a time. She reckons she's only got to stare at them and their toffee in her hands. And then who has to sort it out afterwards, eh? Go on, guess. The ancient wooden door at the top of the stairs gave way to Nanny Og's boot, with Nanny Og's momentum behind it, and cracked open to a big shadowy space. It was full of running figures, legs flickered in the light of lanterns, people were shouting. A figure ran straight towards her. Nanny sprang into a crouch, both thumbs on the cork of the badly shaken champagne bottle she held cradled under one arm. This is a magnum, she said, and I'm not afraid to drink it. The figure stopped. Oh, it's you, Mrs Og. Nanny's infallible memory for personal details threw up a card. Peter, isn't it? she said, relaxing. The one with the bad feet. That's right, Mrs Og. The powder I give you is working, is it? They're a lot better now, Mrs Og. So what's been happening? Mr Salzella caught the ghost. Really? Now that Nanny's eyes had managed to discern some order in the chaos, she could see a cluster of people in the middle of the floor around the chandelier. Salzella was sitting on the planking. His collar was torn and a sleeve had been ripped off his jacket, but he had a triumphant look in his eyes. He waved something in the air. It was white. It looked like a piece of skull. It was Plinge, he said. I tell you, it was Walter Plinge. Why are you all standing around? Get after him. Walter, said one of the men doubtfully. Yes, Walter. Another man hurried up, waving his lantern. I saw the ghost heading up to the roof, and there was some big one-eyed bastard going after him like a scalded cat. That's wrong, thought Nanny. Something wrong here. To the roof, shouted Salzella. Hadn't we better get the flaming torches first? Flaming torches are not compulsory. Pitchforks and scythes? That's only for vampires. How about just one torch? Get up there now, understand? The curtains closed. There was a smattering of applause which was barely audible above the chatter from the audience. The chorus turned to one another. Was that supposed to happen? 
dust rained down, stagehands were scampering across the gantries far above. Shouts echoed among the ropes and dusty backdrops. A stagehand ran across the stage holding a flaming torch. Here, what's going on? said a tenor. They've got the ghost. He's heading for the roof. It's Walter Plinge. What? Walter? Our Walter Plinge? Yes. The stagehand ran on in a trail of sparks, leaving the yeast of rumour to ferment in the ready dough that was the chorus. Walter? Surely not. Well, he is a bit odd, isn't he? But only this morning he said to me, It's a nice day, Mr Sidney, just like that, normal as anything. Well, normal for Walter. As a matter of fact, it's always worried me, the way his eyes move as though they don't talk to each other. And he's always around the place. Yes, but he's the odd job man. No argument about that. It's not Walter, said Agnes. They looked at her. That's who we said they're chasing, dear. I don't know who they're chasing, but Walter's not the ghost. Fancy anyone thinking Walter's the ghost, said Agnes hotly. He wouldn't hurt a fly. Anyway, I've seen. He's always struck me as a bit slimy, though. And they say he goes down into the cellars a lot. What for, I ask myself. Let's face it, fair's fair. He's crazy. He doesn't act crazy, said Agnes. Well, he always looks as though he's about to. You must admit it. I'm going to see what's happening. Anyone coming? Agnes gave up. It was a horrible thing to learn, but there are times when evidence gets trampled and the hunt is on. A hatch flew open. The ghost clambered out, looked down and slammed the hatch shut. There was a yowl from below. Then he danced across the leads until he reached the gargoyle-encrusted parapet, black and silver in the moonlight. The wind caught at his cloak as he ran along the very edge of the roof and dropped down again near another door. And a gargoyle was suddenly no longer a gargoyle, but a figure that reached down suddenly and twitched off his mask. It was like cutting strings. "'Good evening, Walter,' said Granny, as he sagged to his knees. "'Hello, Mrs. Weatherwax.' "'Mistress,' Granny corrected him. "'Now stand up.' There was a growl further along the roof, and then a thump. Bits of trapdoor rose for a moment against the moonlight. "'It's nice up here, ain't it?' said Granny. "'There's fresh air and stars. "'I thought up or down, but there's only rats down below.' "'In another swift movement she grabbed Walter's chin and tilted it, "'just as Grebo pulled himself onto the roof with prolonged murder in his heart. "'How does your mind work, Walter Plinge? "'If your house was on fire, what's the first thing you'd try to take out?' "'Grebo stalked along the rooftop, growling.' He liked rooftops in general, and some of his fondest memories involved them, but a trapdoor had just been slammed on his head and he was looking for anything he could disembowel. Then he recognised the shape of Walter Plinge as someone who had given him food, and standing right next to him, the much more unwelcome shape of Granny Weatherwax, who had once caught him digging in her garden and kicked him in the cucumbers. Walter said something. Grebo didn't take much notice of it. Granny Weatherwax said, ''Well done. A good answer. Grebo!'' Grebo nudged Walter heavily in the back. Want milk right now? Purr, purr. Granny thrust the mask at the cat. In the distance, people were running upstairs and shouting. You put this on, and you stay down real low, Walter Plinge. One man in a mask is pretty much like another after all, and when they chase you, Grebo, give them a run for their money. Do it right. There could be... Oh, I know said Grebo despondently, taking the mask. It was turning out to be a long and busy evening for a kipper. Someone poked their head out of the stricken trap door. 
The light glinted off Grebo's mask, and it had to be said, even by Granny, that he made a good ghost. For one thing, his morphogenic field was trying to reassert itself. His claws could no longer even remotely be thought of as fingernails. He spat at the pursuit as they poured up the steps, arched his back dramatically on the very edge of the roof, and stepped off. One story down, he thrust out an arm, caught a windowsill, and landed on the head of a gargoyle, which said, "'Oh, thank you very much!' in a reproachful voice. The pursuers looked down at him. Some of them had managed to get hold of flaming torches, because sometimes convention is too strong to be lightly denied. Grebo snarled defiance and dropped again, springing from sill to drainpipe to balcony, and pausing every now and again for another dramatic pose and another snarl at the pursuers. "'We'd better get after him, Corporal de Nobs,' said one of them, who was staggering along behind. "'We'd better get after him by carefully going back down the stairs, you mean? "'Cause something I drank don't want to stay drunk. <laughs> "'Much more running and I'll be dropping a custard, I'm telling you.' "'The other members of the posse also seemed to be reaching the conclusion "'that there was no extended future in chasing a man down the sheer wall of a building. "'As one mob, they turned and, shouting and waving their torches in the air, "'headed back to the stairs.' The parting crowd revealed Nanny Og holding a pitchfork in one hand and a torch in the other and thrusting them both in the air while muttering, Rhubarb, rhubarb. Granny walked over and tapped her on the shoulder. They've gone, Githa. Rhubarb. Oh, oh, hello, Esme, said Nanny, lowering the implements of righteous retribution. I was just tagging along to see it didn't get out of hand. Was that Grebo I saw just then? Yes. Oh, bless him, said Nanny. He looked a bit bothered, though. I hope he doesn't happen to anybody. Where's your broomstick? said Granny. It's in the cleaner's cupboard backstage. Then I'll borrow it and keep an eye on things, said Granny. Hey, he's my cat. I ought to be looking after him, Nanny began. Granny stepped aside, revealing a huddled shape sitting hugging its knees. You look after Walter Plinge, she said. It's something you'd be better at than me. Hello, Mrs Ogg, said Walter mournfully. Nanny looked at him for a moment. So was he the... Uh... Yes. You mean he really did do the murder? What do you think, said Granny? Well, if it comes to it, I think he didn't, said Nanny. Can I have a word in your ear, Esme? I don't reckon I should say this in front of young Walter. The witches bent their heads together. There was a brief, whispered conversation. Everything is simple when you know the answer, said Granny. I'll be back soon. She hurried off. Nanny heard her shoes clattering on the stairs. Nanny looked down at Walter again and held out her hand. Up you get, Walter. Yes, Mrs Ogg. I expect we'd better find somewhere for you to lie low, eh? I know a hidden place, Mrs Ogg. You do, do you? Walter lurched across the roof towards another trapdoor and pointed to it proudly. That? said Nanny. That doesn't look very hidden to me, Walter. Walter gave it a puzzled look and then grinned in the way a scientist might after he'd solved a particularly difficult equation. It's hidden where everyone can see it, Mrs Ogg. Nanny gave him a sharp look, but there was nothing but a slightly glazed innocence in Walter's eyes. He lifted up the trapdoor and pointed politely downwards. You go down the ladder first so I will not see your drawers. Very kind of you, said Nanny. It was the first time anyone had ever said anything like that to her. The man waited patiently until she had reached the bottom of the ladder, and then climbed laboriously down after her. 
This is just an old staircase, isn't it? said Nanny, prodding at the darkness with her torch. Yes, it goes all the way down, except at the bottom where it goes all the way up. Anyone else know about it? The ghost, Mrs. Ogg, said Walter, climbing down. Oh, yes, said Nanny slowly. And where's the ghost now, Walter? He ran away. She held up the torch. There was still nothing to be read in Walter's expression. What does the ghost do here, Walter? He watches over the opera. That's very kind of him, I'm sure. Nanny started downwards, and as the shadows danced around her, she heard Walter say, You know she asked me a very silly question, Mrs. Ogg. It was a silly question any fool knows the answer. Oh, yes, said Nanny, peering at the walls. About houses on fire, I expect. Yes, what would I take out of our house if it was on fire? I expect you were a good boy and said you'd take your mum, said Nanny. No, my mum would take herself. Nanny ran her hands over the nearest wall. Doors had been nailed shut when the staircase had been abandoned. Someone walking up and down here with a keen pair of ears could hear a lot of things. What would you take out then, Walter? she said. The fire! Nanny stared, unseeing at the wall, and then her face slowly broke into a grin. You're daft, Walter Plinge, she said. Daft as a broom, Mrs Ogg, said Walter cheerfully. But you ain't insane, she thought. You're daft, but you're sane. That's what Esme would say. And there's worser things. Gribo pounded along Broadway. He was suddenly not feeling very well. Muscles were twitching in odd ways. A tingling at the base of his spine indicated that his tail wanted to grow and his ears definitely wanted to creep up the sides of his head, which is always embarrassing when it happens in company. In this case, the company was about a hundred yards behind and apparently intent on moving his ears quite a long way from their current position, embarrassment or not. It was gaining, too. Grebo normally had a famous turn of speed, but not when his knees were trying to reverse direction every few seconds. His normal plan, when pursued, was to jump onto the water butt behind Nanny Ogg's cottage and rake the pursuer across the nose with his claws when it came around the corner. Since this would now involve a 500-mile dash, an alternative had to be sought. There was a coach waiting outside one of the houses. He lurched over to it, pulled himself up, grabbed the reins and briefly turned his attention to the driver. Get off! Grebo's teeth shone in the moonlight. The coachman, with great presence of mind and urgent absence of body, somersaulted backwards into the night. The horses reared and tried to break into a gallop from a standing start. Animals are less capable of being fooled than are humans. They knew that what they had behind them was a very large cat, and the fact that it was man-shaped didn't make them any happier. The coach lumbered off. Grebo looked over his twitching shoulder at the torch-lit crowd and waved a paw derisively. The effect pleased him so much that he clambered onto the roof of the swaying coach and continued to jeer. It is a cat-like attribute to spit defiance at the enemy from a place of safety. In the circumstances, it would have been better if cat-like attributes had included the ability to steer. A wheel hit the parapet of the brass bridge and scraped along it, the iron rim kicking up sparks. The shock knocked Grebo from his perch in mid-gesture. He landed on his feet in the middle of the road, while the terrified horses continued on with the coach rocking dangerously from side to side. The pursuers stopped. <gasps> What's he doing now? He's just standing there. 
There's only one of him and there's lots of us, right? We could easily overpower him. Good idea. On the count of three, we'll all rush him, right? One, two, three. Pause. You didn't run? Well, nor did you. Yes, but I was the one saying one, two, three. Remember what he did to Mr Pounder? Yes, well, I never liked the man all that much. Grebo snarled. Ticklish things were happening to his body. He threw his head back and roared. Look, at worst, he'd only be able to get one or two of us. Oh, that's good, is it? Here, why is he twisting round like that? Maybe he hurt himself falling off the coach. Let's get him, 